I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hey, love. Hey. Hey, hey. We're going to bring you a feminist faves this week. And my thinking on it was like, oh, we'll do like feminists in sports because the Olympics are coming up or whatever. And we were just talking like, wait, it's like the middle of July. When are they starting? Apparently it's in like another week. Yeah. I was just telling Matt again, like I listen, (laughs) if the Olympics are your thing, like no shade sports in general are not my thing. My upstairs neighbors were losing their minds earlier. There must've been a game on. Yeah. Um, And I just, I just, I, I don't care. Like yeah. that's what it really comes down to. I'm just like, I just don't care. Like there are certain players or um, athletes who I might like get excited about. Like I was excited about Shikari Richardson and stuff yeah. like that. But in general, I don't care. And then I've done just too much like reading about like what the Olympics does to like unhoused people and communities. Oh, it's, it's crazy. I think for me, I always think of 
like the Winter Olympics more when I think of the Olympics and I think of the skating. Because for me, that's like, who's going to make the team? Who's going to get there? And right, like, you're invested in that. Yeah, and it's yeah. an individual sport. It's like you have each of your individual people that you're like rooting for and it's just a, it's just once every four years. There is something about that where it's not like, like nationals or worlds where it happens every single mm-hmm. year. It's like supposedly like the best of the best once every four years. So there are kind of these stakes with it that Mm -hmm. I've always totally bought into with skating. But the rest of it, yeah, I don't really care one way or the other. I love watching gymnastics. I love watching the diving. Yeah, there are certain things like that that I will enjoy if it's on for sure. Like I would enjoy watching gymnastics, diving, um, ice skating, like those things I I can kind of like get into. And I, honestly, I could get into watching anything if it was on, yeah. but I just don't care enough to, to have go out like, of your way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had no, I was like, I don't know. It's coming up soon. It's yeah. coming up. You know, I'm way more excited about the Winter Olympics. I never really care too much about the Summer Olympics just because I don't, I don't have an interest in any summer sports really. Yeah. So. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, but that was kind of my thinking as to our theme for the feminist phase instead of just doing a more broad uh, topic. So we are going to be bringing you some feminist athletes this mm-hmm. week. And I was very excited to learn more about this person. And I look forward to learning even more when I have time to watch the biopic that was made about her life. Today, I'm going to be talking about Billie Jean King. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. I thought for sure you were going to do Rapinoe because you watched that documentary. That was one of my options, but I was reading about both of them. And Billie Jean King is someone that I've seen her pictures. I've heard her story. I remember when that movie Battle of the Sexes came out a couple mm-hmm. years ago. But I didn't really know that much about her. And there was something intriguing about that to me where I was like, I I, I know like the basic stuff, Mm -hmm. but I'm interested to know more about what she did. And she really was such a feminist lady in this sport. Uh, So I was so excited to learn more about her. And now you all will get to as well. So Billie Jean was born on November 22nd, 1943 in Long Beach, California. She was the oldest child of Bill and Betty Moffat and was raised in a conservative Methodist family. And Billie was actually a very religious child and expressed a desire to someday become a preacher when she was young. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I feel this in a way because when I was in middle school and my only friend was literally a nun in the convent attached to my school, <laughs> I, I felt that. I understood that like, kind of tied to religion in a way that made me have my days at school be more bearable and I had someone to look up to who was a nun so like I kind I was never going to be a nun or anything like that myself but I can kind of understand that safety and yeah I think there are other things as well like I think you hear this a lot from performers especially performers who grew up in the church and I think being a preacher or being part of like the choir or the worship band or whatever, I think it's one of your first, if if you, if your parents have been taking you to church, right. It's one of your first introductions to like performance. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. And so you might think like, Oh, I'm going to grow up to be a preacher, but what you really want to do is like be on stage or something. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. Oh, and I want to mention here, I refer to Billie Jean as Billie through this whole thing. I didn't do Billie Jean because it was just really annoying to type Billie Jean every 
every single time. So I think she does. BJ? No, I'm just prefer, That's what I was saying. I'm like, I'm not going to call her BJ. Like, that's just weird. Um, so I'm going to be referring to her as Billy, Billy Jean. I'm sorry if that is not the way you prefer to be called, but it's easier for me. So that's the way I'm going to do it. Uh, her father was an engineer for the local fire department, and her mom was mostly a homemaker who sold things like Tupperware and Avon products. Oh Do you remember gosh. those days? Wow. That's like the most, what is that, like 50s, well, this 60s? Is, yeah, this would be like the 50s. But man, I remember Avon products, I feel like, even when I was young. But I guess it was more like Clinique. For and me, it was, like it was Mary Kay. I always Mary got... Mary Kay, that's yeah. what I was... Not Clinique, Mary Kay, yes. Yeah, I always got invited to the Mary Kay parties. Oh, yeah. I had so many friends that had Mary Kay birthday parties, and I always loved them because you would come home with all the little samples, samples of all the makeup and stuff. And that was before I knew how MLMs worked, so I was just like, oh, I'm just here to get a makeover and hang I, out. Like, I think it took me, like... I don't even think I realized it was an MLM until just now. <laughs> I'm, like, coming to... Oh, God, It's I one was, of the higher oh. class ones, but... Yeah. Yeah. Totally. But like as a kid, you don't think about it that way. I'm like, oh, fuck. Yeah, that's totally a pyramid scheme. Uh, her parents encouraged all of their children to get involved in sports and they were all super athletic themselves. So her father, Bill Moffat, actually played basketball against Jackie Robinson in junior college and basketball, wow. not baseball, which I thought was funny. He played basketball against Jackie Interesting. Robinson. I wonder how Jackie Robinson was at basketball. Probably pretty good. Probably pretty damn good. Such an athletic person, right? But Bill actually turned down an invite to play for the NBA due to his commitment to his family when Billy was only a year old. Wow. Yeah. Did you know that my uncle was asked to be a part of the Minnesota North Stars, which is what it was before the wild? And my aunt was like, no, you're staying home with us. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Isn't I don't that know crazy? that I could tell my I don't know if I could tell my husband no about something like that. I'd be like, look, get your dreams. OK, exactly. like we only we only have one go around. So exactly. do your thing. And he could have been in, in the NHL. Like that would have been so cool. But nope. Alas. Oh, I Alas, he could not. Oh, I thought you said, hold on. I was like, hold no, on no. for what? <laughs> Billy was originally devoted to softball, but was introduced to tennis by a school friend who invited Billy to play at their country club that her family frequented. And tennis was and kind of still is considered this like country club sport. It is, yeah. You know, it's like more... It's a rich person sport. Rich yeah. and elitist and all that kind of stuff. And Billy's family was just working class. Her father was an engineer for a fire department. Her mom was just a homemaker. It wasn't like they came from this, you know, big amount of money or anything. She also discovered that there were free classes being given at the public courts in Houghton Park, Long Beach, and saved her money to buy her first racket with the money she got doing odd jobs for her parents and neighbors. Billy won her first championship in Southern California, and shortly after that championship began being coached by the 1930s tennis coach Alice Marble, and she was Billy was just 15 at the time when she started to being coached more seriously. In her teen years, she began to see the discrepancy between her working class family and the privileged lifestyle she was surrounded by at the club. And this was a pivotal point of awakening for Billy and a driving force in her career. She was very like aware of the discrepancies between the life she was living as an athlete and the life that she was living with well, her family not, and her personal life. You know, yeah. How could you not? Totally. As her tennis career progressed, she attended Los Angeles State College for three years. Though she was a talented amateur player, she was unable to receive a scholarship for the school based on the fact that she was a woman. So you could get a male tennis scholarship, but you I'm couldn't sorry. get a female tennis what scholarship. Year? 
This would have been like 1963, I think she okay, went to college. Okay, so the early 60s. I suppose yeah. that that still makes sense. Okay. But like, what the fuck, right? Because she's awesome. It was in college that she met Larry King, who she married in 1965. Billy credits Larry for introducing her to feminism and for pushing her to pursue a professional tennis career. Okay. Yeah, like Larry's fucking cool. We'll hear more about Larry and we love Larry. She later said that she was, quote, totally in love with Larry when they married. While still in college in 1961, oh, so it must have been like 1961 that she started. Okay. She won the Wimbledon doubles championship with her partner, Karen Hans, on their first attempt becoming the youngest team ever to win. Throughout the early 1960s, she continued to dominate women's tennis. Just as in childhood, Billie Jean's style of tennis was much different than the rest of her competitors. Women were expected to be very like dainty and demure mm-hmm. when they played. It's not you know, her there's style. No, there's no grunting. There's no over, you know, aggressive running or anything like That's that. That's the thing that stands out to me when I think about her is I just remember when when someone says Billie Jean King to me automatically, you know, it's like the grunt. I Well, I can see it in my brain. It's like it plays like clips. It yeah. just plays a clip of her like running across and like she was there. She meant business. Like there yeah. are certain athletes like that. Like I think like Tanya Harding is also one of those. If we're, yeah. if we're staying in tennis, like Serena Williams is one of those. It's like, I'm here to win. Yeah. Right. Simone Biles is one of those. Totally. It's like, I'm not here to look pretty. I'm here to be the best athlete I can be. Right. Yeah. Totally. Well, and she also, her mom would make her these like tennis shorts instead of wearing like the traditional white dress and skirt and things like that. So she really did stand out with the way she looked, but she's like, no, I'm fucking playing a sport. Like I'm going to do this thing. You know, I was such a girly girl growing up that I wanted to play tennis because of the the tennis skirts because of the outfit like I was just like and I wish I'd done it my mom said it too she was just like oh you would have been so cute you would have been adorable I'll put you in tennis because you'd be so cute in one of those skirts and I'm like why didn't you because first of all I like tennis it's fun yeah and secondly look I love the shorts I love it. I love she went the sh- that she went the Schwartz direction. I'm not a serious athlete, and I just kind of wanted to look cute in one totally. of those like pleated tennis skirts. Totally. Well, that's what's so funny to me. I was such, and I, I don't like to use this phrase anymore, but it was what was used on me when I was little. I was such a tomboy in a lot of ways when I was growing up. Like I mm-hmm. hated wearing dresses. Not I was I. always dirty. I was always in like overalls and Converse sneakers and backwards baseball caps as a little kid but then in skating I was like I need more sparkle Mm -hmm. pink this but it was so weird like that dichotomy between like my childhood like playing around self and then when I got on the ice I was like I want the sparkliest featheriest well you have permission because that's also what it was in that sport you know like so it's just like here's your one outlet to be able to do that yeah it's just funny because like I was not one to wear pink or anything like that I had so many like hot pink dresses I had a bubblegum pink bedroom my mom let me pick my my bedroom I had a pink room as a little kid too but what's so funny is like I don't recall being that big of a pink girl but I but it's kind of the same thing for me now I love to look at pink I don't wear a lot of pink I'm not a big like pink person but I I love the color I would never my bedroom was Pepto-Bismol pink like it with my mom like god bless my mom like she gave us so much autonomy as kids yeah where she was like it's your room we'll go to Home Depot and you can pick the color and it was the ugliest pink I had a friend that their parents let them paint their room like 
neon green. Yeah. Bright green. Like bad choices. Just really, really bad But I choices. love it. And I would, if I ever had kids, I would do the same thing. Exactly. I'm like, you, be, you be you. You be weird. And yeah. And like pick whatever like it's weird your color. Room. Yeah. You know, and if you want the color changed, you paint it yourself. <laughs> um, Billy was described as being a perfectionist with fellow player Chris Evert saying that Billy's impatience was her weakness. Oh, girl, same. Yeah. Jeez. She won her first Wimbledon singles title in 1966 and had repeat success the next year in 1967. Between 1966 and 1974, Billie Jean King was ranked number one in the world five times and was in the top and was in the top 10 for a total of 17 years. She won 39 Grand Slam titles, 12 singles, 16 doubles, 11 mixed, and her greatest success in her career was winning 20 titles at Wimbledon. I didn't write a lot about her like individual career successes because the girl won everything. Like, right. She was just... That's always the way it is with these episodes. Yeah. Where it's just like, we could sit here, like there's probably an entire Wikipedia section just dedicated to her accomplishments. Um, and, like, by like the year. Literally yeah. by the year and then it's paragraphs and paragraphs and it's talking about the different events and who she played and all this stuff. And like it's fascinating, but there's no way. Yeah, just know she was killing it. Okay? She was killing the game. These achievements within this time made her third on the all-time list of female tennis players. Even though Billie Jean was one of the most decorated and well-loved athletes of the time, chauvinistic tennis fans and officials angered her. She became one of the biggest proponents of equal pay within tennis. So there are two eras, and I don't know them super well, but there's like the pre-open era, which was before 1968. And during that time, Billie earned $100 a week as a playground instructor just to make ends meet when not competing in tournaments because the pay difference between the men's tournaments and the women's tournaments were so huge and this is still happening today yeah like none of this has changed mm -hmm. that these women have to get second and third jobs even though they're devoting most of their time to their sport they have to spread themselves even thinner in order to make ends meet which okay i don't want to make this a blanket statement but i know speaking of rapinoe like with the women's um national U.S. team for yeah. soccer. Uh, that's a big thing that they've been advoca- advocating for is equal pay because they keep winning everything. Like yeah. they win everything and the men don't uh, yeah. for the U.S. team as often. And they're winning everything with all of the added shit. You know exactly. what I mean? Like with all of the, like not being able to make as much money to completely dedicate themselves yeah. to this thing. And yeah. so oftentimes they play even better, even though they're, spread thinner you know yeah what I, mean? I really recommend watching lfg the documentary on netflix it's so good i can't remember her name but there's a player who's a single mom who coaches on the side and plays on this team and and still heartbreaking rushes it yeah it's still on like the best soccer team male or female in the goddamn world mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's amazing Billy criticized the United States Lawn Tennis Association in a series of press conferences denouncing their practice of shamateurism. And shamateurism is a sports player who makes money through sport through classified, though classified as an amateur. So it's kind of like being paid under the table. She argued that this practice was what kept the game so elitist. When the open era began, she began to campaign for equal prize money to the men's games. Her husband, Larry, came up with an idea in 1971 to form a nine-player group with the financial backing of the World Tennis Magazine founder, Gladys Heldman, and a few other sponsors. So they like created their own team, and nine women like left 
from like the main organization and joined this little team with their own sponsors and things like that for a while, which was ran by Billie Jean's husband, Larry. Um, There isn't a whole lot about this, but it's during this time period, and I thought it was an important thing to mention. In 1971, she had an abortion, which she made public in a Ms. Magazine article, which is Gloria Steinem's magazine. Um, And I feel like that was something that was just given such a quick little sentence in all the research that I did, but I feel like is actually a pretty... Would have been a big deal, I think. A huge Mm -hmm. deal for an athlete of her caliber to open up about an abortion in a widely popular magazine. In 1972, she became the first woman to be chosen as Sports Illustrated Sports Person of the Year. So everything seemed to be on the up and up until 1972 when she received $15,000 less than the men's champion at the U.S. Open. She stated that she wouldn't compete the next year unless the prize money was equal. Thankfully, the next year, the prize money was equal between the men's and women's tournaments, making it a first for any major tournament to do so. Also in 1973, Billy became the first president of the Women's Players Union, the Women's Tennis Association, and her husband Larry also co-founded the World Team Tennis in 1973 with the money from the couple's savings to put on a team tennis event at the Oakland Coliseum. She also became the coach for the Philadelphia Freedoms and became the first woman to coach professional male athletes. Um, Elton John actually wrote a song for her called Philadelphia Freedom as a nod to her team, which I love. Uh, And she was the league commissioner starting in 1982 and major owner in 1984. Also, in the beginning of the 1970s, Billy hired a woman named Marilyn Barnett, who was a hairdresser, to be her personal assistant. Though Billy had done so many amazing things for the sport of tennis, it was the Battle of the Sexes match that made mm-hmm. her legendary across the United States. And that's what the movie Battle of the Sexes, obviously, right. with Emma Stone and Steve Carell, is all about. I didn't get to watch the movie. I really wanted to, but I've had like no nights free. And it's <laughs> so I like, haven't been able to. Last time I checked, because I wanted to watch it, like, I mean, this was a while ago, but I wanted to watch it, and it was behind the, a paywall. Like, I oh. couldn't find. I mean, which is fine. Like, you can pay to watch it. But, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. usually, I, I subscribe to so many streaming services. I'm like, surely it's yeah. on something, something. somewhere. And yeah. I wasn't able to find it. But, I mean, Ugh. of course, you can rent it on Vudu or something else, I'm sure. Yeah, I usually rent through Amazon, do mm-hmm. my Amazon Prime video, whatever, that kind of thing. So, Billie Jean was only 29 at the time. And she played against this, like, legend. What a piece of shit. Yeah, legendary asshole tennis player Bobby Riggs who was 55 and apparently Bobby Riggs was someone that Billie Jean really looked up to and like everybody in tennis did until he kind of opened his mouth um Riggs was a former number one ranked men's player he is also a self-proclaimed male chauvinist oh yeah yeah proud of it I remember this super proud this was the first thing I mean, because unfortunately, it is kind of the thing that she it put. It was well, it was like the game that even if you didn't watch tennis, you watched everybody that. watched it. Right. Yeah. Right. And it was her being very outspoken publicly, you know, and it's the first thing that when I was growing up and I was starting to hear about Billie Jean King, that's the thing that people were talking about. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And 
Briggs would talk about how, you know, women can't hand, handle the pressure of a game like tennis, like men could, like Have this is seen, why they don't deserve it. Sorry, about to go on a rant because I it. had this conversation with Anthony last night because with everything that's going on in the Euro Cup, um, there's a lot of racism happening uh, online and <laughs> I... I hate it. I hate that line anyway, that like women are, they, they can't handle the pressure of this. Or yeah. That. Have you fucking seen a sports fan, a man, his they team, cry. his team lose a game. They're sobbing. They riot. Yeah. They break things. They punch people. They scream at children. That's something that happened at the Euro cup. Uh, like they, they lose their minds. Even when they win, sometimes they lose their mind. And like there was a hockey team in Canada that like, rioted in the streets after they won they're not even the ones playing yeah it's a team of people who don't even know you fucking exist exactly and like you lose your shit and it's just like how are women too emotional for literally anything like how is that ever an argument (laughs) whenever i see the way the vast majority of male sports fans react when they're totally fucking loses yeah like it is like a death it is ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm also not a sports fan, so I'm I'm, I'm biased. But no, I'm like, it's I, ridiculous. But I completely agree. Like, I would never throw shit because the girl I wanted to win didn't win the competition. There's, like, that doesn't make sense to me. There is no me. equivalency in anything else. Like, I've, I've thought about it. I'm like, look, I love, I love the Oscars. Okay? I'm not going to punch a Helen Mirren fan in the face if she wins, <laughs> if she wins the best actress Academy Award. Would that be really funny? <laughs> over Meryl Streep. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. Who? No one else gets like. Anyway, it's, it's that's a completely side rant. But it yeah, just, that, it, it really is this like weird, like you know, macho, uber testosterone kind of. But response. so that triggers me. Like that, that triggers me whenever him to for him to say that in yeah. sports, especially because I'm just like. If anything, like women are have proven themselves to be far calmer under yeah. pressure. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? A- exactly. And so at this point, he's like, I'm 55 and I could still beat any female player, new, old, anything. Give me your best female players and I bet I'm going to beat them. And I believe he did play one other woman before her who he did beat. But this main battle of the sexes event occurred on September 20th, 1973. And Billie Jean and Riggs would compete in a televised event with 50 million people tuning in and witnessed in person by over 30,000 spectators at the Houston Astrodome. She made quite an entrance. Like, honestly, both of these entrances are kind of like... weird to me like she came in like Cleopatra style like on this throne and then it was like these men dressed as like enslaved Egyptian people from way back when like carrying her in and it was like all golden and glittery I mean it's a problematic take but it was what 1970 this was 1973 yeah yeah and then Riggs came in on a rickshaw pulled by female models oh why would they agree to do that, honey? I don't know. Money. Money. Money, 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 money. And he is like legendary. That's the thing is like there's probably, I mean, why do women love any assholes? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's Dan Blazarian has a, a whole like Ugh. group of women and he's literal trash. Yeah. So, so many yeah. do. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to us, but to some people, obviously it makes some sense. When the match was called, Billie Jean beat Riggs 6-4, 6-3, 6-3. So she 
crushed his ass playing. Like she was done. This win was a symbolic victory for women and proved to be a pivotal moment in gender relations for many Americans. A lot of women, even who weren't athletes, were able to point to this moment of success yeah. and say, like, look, we can do this thing. We are capable. Well, and it was probably such a, like, <laughs> moment of catharsis for everyone. Yes. Like, for everyone to see this fucking asshole get, who this self-proclaimed like chauvinist. chauvinist like you can't let this motherfucker win yeah, come on billy you've got to win you have, for all women you have to win <laughs> for real and she did she was phenomenal in 1974 she created the women's sports foundation which aimed to provide opportunities for women and girls in sport and this is the part of the story that i did not know a whole lot about and the part that i found the most fascinating about her life so on may 1st 1981 Billie jean king became the first prominent professional female athlete to publicly come out as gay so i mentioned marilyn that mm-hmm. she that was hired in the early 70s marilyn worked as billy's secretary manager and confidant as well as picking up any slack around the house such as cooking and cleaning anything that would ensure that billy's energy could be saved for the tennis courts Billy says that she had come to the realization that she was attracted to women back in 1968, shortly before meeting Marilyn. And according to tennismajors.com, the two had an affair from about 1972 to 1979. Billy even allowed Marilyn to live in she and Larry's home in Malibu beginning in 1971, but the Kings asked her to leave in 1979. Wow, that's a long time. So she was there for eight years. Eight years they were together together. Eight years she lived in this home. I I don't really have any details as to like whether Larry knew. Yeah, whether right? like, I don't really know what the circumstances of it all were. I don't know what led to the breakup. But what happens after the breakup is crazy. So in retaliation to being asked to leave this Malibu home, Marilyn threatened to leak records and receipts such as love letters between the women, credit card receipts, and paid bills. When this failed, Marilyn Barnett decided to file a lawsuit against Billie Jean King, claiming that in addition to being her personal assistant, that they had an ongoing affair. So this would then be released to the public. And that was kind of Marilyn's intention was to, you know, out Billie Jean King, essentially. It's terrible. Billie was in Orlando, Florida, playing in a tournament when she heard the news. Her lawyers initially issued a statement denying the affair and Billie's alleged sexuality, and they quickly filed their own lawsuit to kick Marilyn out of the Malibu home in which she still lived. Billie says this was done without her approval. According to Marilyn, while the affair was going on, Billy had promised to provide for her needs as well as to give her the Malibu home. And Marilyn invoked a California legal doctrine that (laughs) under certain circumstances, a woman was entitled to share in community property acquired while she lived with a man out of wedlock. And Marilyn's lawyers thought that this could easily apply to a relationship between two women. And so she sought half of Billy's earnings for the seven years that they were together. Okay. Isn't that wild? That to me is totally wild. Like I, I look, I've been in a relationship with Anthony for eight years. If we could, I, I would never think that I'm entitled. And we have no. a lot of things tied up together, right? Yeah. Like we've, we've bought a lot of stuff together. I would never think that I'm entitled to half of his earnings. No, like 
No, you split up your shit. You know, you do that amicably between each other. Like, okay, you take this, I take that. What are we going to do with this thing? But no, like that would never even come to my mind to go after like right. their earnings. And I think that this law probably exists to protect women in a way, right? Like women yeah. who have been in relationships with somebody who maybe aren't, aren't married, but have put in a lot of that, like, um, that uh, labor, whether like emotional or whatever, household labor, unpaid labor. Right. For and years if the and woman years. in this situation isn't working, you know, for that, I understand. Right. This seems like she's taking advantage of the situation. Yeah. She's totally taking advantage of the situation. In one article too, I read that like a way that she was going to try to keep the house and retaliate was like she fell off the balcony, like fell off the balcony of the home and all this kind of stuff. By the end of April, Marilyn again threatened to just reveal their love letters and out Billy. And that was when Billy felt like she needed to act. For the next two days, Billy fought with her lawyers who tried to talk her out of publicly coming out, but they couldn't change her mind. In her biography by Frank Defford, she says, I was sure the thing would never just go away of its own accord. It was always going to be there, nagging at us, and every time it might fade a little, we could be sure that Marilyn and her lawyer would do something to bring it back to the public eye. In 2017, she told NBC News, I said I'm going to do it. This is important to me to tell the truth. The one thing my mother always said, to thine self be true. So she held a press conference in Los Angeles that May 1st, 1981, with a packed room and a camera which would relay her message throughout the day on CNN. At her side was her lawyer, her parents, and her husband, Larry. Larry even introduced Billy for her announcement. And this is just a a piece of what Billy said during her press conference. I felt very strongly about this. I've always been above board with the press, and I will talk now as I have always talked, from my heart. I've always felt it's important that people have their privacy. And unfortunately, someone in my life doesn't think it's very sacred. I did have an affair with Marilyn, but it was over quite some time ago. I'm very disappointed and shocked that Marilyn has done this, not only to herself in a very destructive way, but to other people who have cared for her. She referred to her relationship in the press conference as a mistake and took responsibility for her actions. Despite her lawyer's warnings, the public's reaction to her coming out was largely positive, praising her for her bravery and honesty. Fellow tennis player Pam Shriver told the Washington Post a few days later, I don't think any of the players will have lost any respect for Billie Jean, as far as what she's done for us as a group. In the last 15 years, she has basically made women's tennis. I think this is probably bound to have an impact on her endorsements. And boy, did it ever. In less than 24 hours, she lost all of her endorsements, losing an equivalent of $2 million. Yeah. Absolutely horrible. That tracks for the 70s. Yeah. And this meant that she had to prolong her tennis career just to pay off her lawyer fees and pay off all of that kind of stuff. Like she maybe wanted to retire a little bit earlier, but she couldn't. She had to make that money back. As far as the lawsuit goes, the judge ruled in favor of Billy and said that Marilyn's actions could have almost been considered an attempt of extortion. I well, wouldn't yeah. even say almost. Like yeah. it was an attempt Certainly. of extortion. I mean, again, like 
that law probably does exist for a reason. Yeah. And I would say that like in certain circumstances, it should apply to same sex couples, like depending right. on the circumstances, but that's not what was happening here. Like no. it, this was not, th- th- this wasn't what that law was created for. That's very yeah. clear. Yeah. Yeah. When also like she was an employee of hers, like I'm sure Billie Jean was paying her, you know, it's just, it all just seems very confusing. In a weird coincidence, though, that Malibu house that Marilyn wanted so badly, it was destroyed during a series of winter storms just a few months later. Oh, so you're lucky that you weren't in it. Yeah, yeah, it was exactly. Destroyed. She saved your life. Marilyn Barnett died at the age of 49 in 1997. Yeah. Young. Yeah, she's not with us anymore. Husband Larry supported Billy the whole time, although they would eventually divorce. But they remained such close friends that Billy would become godmother to the son that Larry had after he remarried. Wow. They were like best friends. That's they were so close. Amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. On why she concealed her sexual identity for so long, Billy says, I wanted to tell the truth, but my parents were homophobic and I was in the closet. As well as that, I had people tell me that if I talked about what I was going through, it would be the end of the women's tour. I couldn't get a closet deep enough. One of my big goals was always to be honest with my parents, and I couldn't be for a long time. I tried to bring up the subject, but felt I couldn't. My mother would say, we're not talking about things like that. And I was pretty easily stopped because I was reluctant anyway. I ended up with an eating disorder that came from trying to numb myself from my feelings. I needed to surrender far sooner than I did. At the age of 51, I was finally able to talk about it properly with my parents, and no longer did I have to measure my words with them. That was a turning point for me, as it meant I didn't have any regrets anymore. So does she identify as as a lesbian? She identifies as, as a lesbian as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, that was probably also very confusing for her because she's in a marriage or a relationship with somebody who she genuinely loves. Yeah. Well, and know. she was raised in a very conservative Methodist family. Like her family was very, right. very religious and conservative. But I can only so. imagine what that must feel like. It's like you think that this is what's expected of you to have this like heterosexual lifestyle and relationship. And you meet a man who you genuinely love. Yes. So you must think like, okay, well, this is what it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? This, and is, like, this is what love is. It yeah. would make it probably even harder <laughs> to then like come to the realization that like, it yeah. doesn't matter that you genuinely care for this person. You're still a lesbian. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. Like, and I mean, she didn't even realize that she was attracted to women until like, six years after she was married Mm -hmm. you know that's really tough that's a really tough thing to go through and I'm so glad that she had Larry there yeah that was so supportive and wonderful and like introduced her to feminism like this dude seems so cool and I'm so glad that her parents through the years just be I I would assume became more understanding you know they didn't even want to have that conversation when she was younger so the fact that her parents were able to grow so much to be able to stand next to her in that press conference from being what she considered homophobic to literally standing next to her when she was coming Mm -hmm. out to the world I think is pretty huge it was in 1987 that Billy fell in love with her doubles partner Ileana Kloss Ileana is from South Africa and is a Jewish woman. She had been playing professional tennis herself since the early 70s. 
The couple together became minority owners of the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team in September 2018, as well as Angel City FC, which is a local Los Angeles-based team set to start play in the National Women's Soccer League in 2022. Oh, okay. Today, Billie Jean resides in New York and Chicago with Ileana, and she is a vegetarian. (laughs) It was announced in March 2021 that she will be an advisor to the first women's bank in Chicago, along with her partner, Ileana. Wow. And that is the story we have thus far of the amazing Billie Jean King. She is amazing. I'm glad that you covered her. And like, there's got to be so much more. Like, I feel like that oh, is just the surface of everything. Now I'm like, I got to find a biography book. I got to find a documentary. I got to watch Battle of the Sexes. I need and to I'm know sure it all. Great documentaries exist. Yeah, there was some even on YouTube. I watched um, like a very short, like 12 minute long documentary that kind of just went through her life pretty quickly. And even that was really well done too. (sighs) Okay. Well, I don't think mine's going to be very long. That's fine. Because there's not a ton of information on this person, but I was like, who am I going to do? You know, I was running through some people in my head and I was just like, hey, I'm not getting like super excited about anyone. Then I found this like bustle article. Yeah. Um, talking about like historic feminist moments in the Olympics. Right. And I was like, yeah. okay, that sounds perfect. Given that like the Olympics are coming up or whatever. Exactly. So I found this person. And so today I'm going to be talking about Fanny Durack. Who's that? Right. Okay. So I got most of this information or a lot of this information from swimmingworldmagazine.com, adb.anu.edu.au. Oh, shit. Right. Which is is an Australian dictionary of biography. And then I I discovered when trying to like find more information, because I was like, that's going to be short as hell if I don't find more stuff. There is an episode of this thing called Sirens. It's YouTube. It's they're short, but it's kind of like drunk history. Okay. But it's like these Australian women who are putting on these like it's the production quality is actually pretty high. Yeah. Um, and it's like they're they're putting on these things that are just talking about Australia's like most badass ladies. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Are they drunk? No, they're not drunk. Okay, no, you, no, you just said drunk history. So it's like, are they drunk? When no, they're it's, doing it's it? a or? similar vibe. Oh, like I it's got that you, same I got kind you. of like history, but like make it fun. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. So Sarah Francis Fanny Durack, she would go by Fanny, was born on the twenty seventh of October, eighteen eighty nine, in Sydney. She was the third of six children, which is just like, hey, middle child mm-hmm. syndrome, um, to immigrant parents, uh, Irish immigrants her father thomas was a publican which i needed to google but it means he owned a pub i'm pretty sure he was a pub owner a publican publican mm-hmm. all and right her mother's name was mary there's not a lot of information about mary i think she was probably a homemaker taking care of those six kids right yeah pretty busy when Fanny was a preteen, she decided that she wanted to learn how to swim. And this activity was as actually... As a preteen? As a preteen. So she was like, <gasps> I don't know, maybe like 12. And she's like, today is the day I'm going to learn how to swim. A thing yeah. that usually like children are taught to do. Like that's well, wild to me. But not at this time. Right? Yeah. So you're talking like the 
early 1900s like that's the, true that's the first true. few and women especially were discouraged from any kind of like sport activity so totally it was very surprising that her parents were so encouraging like they yeah. were like yes go learn how to swim because there were a lot of reasons why women were discouraged from playing sports one of those reasons was because of modesty, right? Yeah. Like remaining modest as a woman at this time was a priority. And of course, swimming was one of the most immodest sports because of what yeah. you wore. Oh my gosh. But those old swimsuits that yes. women would wear. And they are unflattering. They're oh, unflattering. Man. And I would imagine like a drowning risk. Like there's so much fabric. Right. Well, so- they're so heavy. Luckily by this time, so maybe not when she was first learning to swim, but by the time she was like in competition, the the swimwear looked kind of like those like bicycle short leotards. Kind of like a wrestling singlet almost. Yes. Yeah, I know what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. a little like more like, not like a dress, like not like a swimming dress. Yeah, right? for real, where you could get like bogged down and yeah. go under the surface. But as I had mentioned in the episode about the ma- the Boston Marathon runner, Catherine Switzer, yeah. when they were talking about long distance running and why they didn't want women to do it, they were doing the same thing with basically all sports. Yeah. Uh, in the early 1900s, especially, many doctors believed that playing sports was bad for your reproductive health. Yeah. They were like, too much physical activity could, quote, loosen the uterus. <laughs> And break that hymen of yours, which would just be the end of the world. Right. They're like, your primary function is to have babies. Yeah. And so just sit down. Just don't rile yourself up too much. No, you know? stay comfy. Just make those babies for us. That's all we want. Exactly. You're just a baby factory. So all of this to say that it was pretty cool that she was allowed to learn how to swim as a young woman. So she learned, and I think part of the reason why she wanted to learn how to swim as well is because she learned how to swim at the Coogee Baths, which is also called the Wiley Baths, which is this kind of famous tidal swimming pool near Coogee Beach in Sydney. And it it's like it held the first Australian swimming championship, and it was one of the first swimming pools to allow mixed gender swimming in Australia. So it was wow. this kind of like new thing that was just like w- women are allowed here at yeah, this place. Yeah. And so, so that would make sense if that's like in her area that she'd be like, oh, cool, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have this opportunity. So at the time Fanny began to swim there, the bath was basically brand new. It was like the year it opened. Wow. She was like, I'm there. Okay, I love that. When she learned how to swim, she did so using the breaststroke, and it was the only style for which there was a championship for women at the time. So I think oh. that that's why. She was like, I'm going to learn how to swim the way that I can Compete. Win. Yeah, like win. I want to yeah. compete. Yeah. So Ironic that it's called the breaststroke, and only women can compete in the breaststroke well, I category. Think, I think men can compete in the breaststroke, but I think it's the only stroke. Right, right, that right. Women but that's what I'm saying. It's in, like yes. women can only compete in the one that has boobies in the mm-hmm. name. Yeah, but like <laughs> that sounds that sounds feminine. We'll go with that. Exactly. And at the age of 17 years old in 1906, she won her first state title. So she'd only Damn. been swimming for a little while at that in point. In 1906. Mm-hmm. And she would go on to add the trudgeon stroke and the Australian crawl, which I guess are different styles of swimming. All right. Uh, to her like arsenal of swim strokes. Like she le- mastered the breaststroke and then she 
she it sounded like she really wanted to get good at whatever she was doing. So, yeah, totally. You know, master that thing. And eventually she became a champion in the freestyle category. So she's just cleaning up left and right. Yeah. She's winning all of these awards. She's winning every award that you can win, like that you can win as a woman, you know. Right. Because they are introducing more categories. More women are getting involved in swimming. And she's in all of it. And she is winning. Her and Mina Wiley, who is the daughter of Henry Wiley, who's the creator of the Wiley bath slash the yeah, yeah. bath. So, which made me laugh because I was just like, I wonder if he was the person who was just like, we're going to make this mixed gender because my daughter wants to swim. Right? Yeah, that would totally make sense. Mm-hmm. But also like how awesome to be like beating the woman or girl who like this was kind of given to for, you know what I right. mean? Like that well, she's like, oh, I'm better than you. Well, <laughs> the two of them kind of went back and forth. Oh, so they okay, were okay. like, they, the two of them won everything. Like it was, if it wasn't one of them, it was the other one who yeah. was getting the top award. Right. And they actually became very, very good friends. I mean, that's what, mm-hmm. I, that's like such a single sport thing. I became I, a lot of my friends that I had at the rink that I moved to after, you know, I was 12. I already knew them so well because I had competed against them for years and years and years, mm-hmm. seeing them like once a month, you become friends with these people especially when you're not on like separate teams you're Mm -hmm. all individual you do create these friends from like you know if you're traveling all over the country or all over your state and yeah they're they're the only other people that you're around that can understand what you're going through so that makes sense that though they're huge competitors I mean some of my best friends are my biggest competitors absolutely yeah and I feel like they were swimming against each other and but they probably made each other better that's exactly what I was gonna say I think that they made each other better because I I think in the first competition that they swam against each other, I think Mina won that one. You know what I mean? And it just made Fanny be like, okay, like I need to up my game. Yeah, I'm going to watch what Mina's doing. I'm going to do better than what she's mm -hmm. doing. I mean, and that's like, that's the healthiest form of competition, Mm -hmm. you know, where you can love each other and want what's best for each other, but also still want to like kick her ass. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So the modern Olympics were still fairly new at this stage, only having existed since 1896, but it had no category for female swimming until 1910. So when Fanny heard that female swimming had been added for women to the Olympics, she wanted in, right? She was Mm -hmm. like, I've already cleaned up every single award that I can win on my own. I want to go to the Olympics. Yeah. So the 1912 Olympic Games were going to be held in Stockholm. And she decided, along with Mina, that she would petition to be allowed to compete. She had to petition because at this point in time, the New South Wales Ladies Amateur Swimming Association, which is a mouthful to say, had ruled that it was indecent for women to swim at the same events as men. So Mm. throughout most of Fanny's life, she competed solely with women and not only competed solely against women, which is pretty standard even for today, but without men even in like the room in the vicinity. Yeah. Yeah. Like the men's competition is going to be Friday and Saturday. The women's competition is going to be Sunday. Like they were completely separate events. Right. Yeah. So the president of the swimming association was a woman named Rose Scott, who was, it's kind of confusing because she was a hardcore suffragette, right? Like, and she fought for women's rights in Australia, but she told Fanny when Fanny came and was like, hey, I would love to compete in the Olympics. She told Fanny, this is a direct quote, quote that she said that her modesty would be, quote, hopelessly blighted 
if she were to compete at the Olympics. And she said that because she believed she was really disgusted with the way, even though she's the president of this association, yeah. she's a women's rights advocate. She was disgusted with the way that women's swimwear was headed, like that kind of like more form fitting um, leotard style, which right. you need to compete because you need to be able to swim fast. Yeah, exactly. But she thought that it was way too revealing and she didn't want that on the national stage representing Australia. Well, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but I can understand maybe their way of thinking because, you know, we, we talked a lot about the early suffragettes and their idea of womanhood and equality and all of that kind of stuff. And I know that a lot of early suffragettes were also like Quakers or very religious mm-hmm. where I think there was still this idea of like, women remaining womanly and modest and all that stuff. Like I don't, it wasn't as trailblazing as the second wave where Mm -hmm. it was about expanding what femininity meant and, you know, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. It was still very much like conformed into what a woman is supposed to look like in society. So in a way, I guess that kind of makes sense that though she's this suffragette and is for women's rights, they were very limited on what right. women's rights they wanted. It has to look wanted. like this. Exactly. Right. So, it, so it does make sense that though she would be someone a little bit more forward thinking, that she would still have an issue with like the modesty and right. things like that. Yeah, and she did. And so she denied Fanny's request to compete. And no. so Fanny tried to get around this. Um, so she went straight to the Australia Olympic Committee, but they too denied the request saying that they, quote, couldn't afford to send female swimmers. They were like, we don't have the cash. Sorry. Same reason why they can't pay the women's soccer team. Okay, mm-hmm. whatever. We don't have the money. Sorry, we're giving too much money to the men. We don't have anything left for you, yeah. essentially, is what they're saying. But unfortunately for both of these associations, yeah. Fanny was super freaking popular. Like, people People had heard about her, you know, they had been like, look at this amazing lady who can yeah. swim fast, you know, um, <laughs> always talk in your old timey voice. And so she had the support of the public who enjoyed watching her swim, but she also had the support of other women's rights activists at the time who were, could see that this would be an incredible thing to have these two women go to the Olympics and represent Australia. Yeah. And some of these women were very well connected in society most notably a socialite named Margaret McIntosh or McIntosh. I feel like I've heard of Margaret McIntosh for some reason. Well, she was married to a famous and wealthy, very wealthy entrepreneur named Hugh McIntosh in Australia. And Fanny and Mina began making public appeals for funds. Like their logic was, all right, the Australia Olympic Association is saying that we can't go because they can't afford it. Yeah, money's the problem. Okay, then we'll, Let's we'll make create money. a solution then. Yeah. Right. So they're like, they have, they'll have no reason to say no if we paid for our own travel and we also paid for our own chaperones because it was mandatory that they had a chaperone for this trip. So they're like, right. we'll pay for that stuff ourselves. So when Margaret McIntosh saw that they were doing this, she used her social status and her husband's connections in the media to spread the word about Fanny and her campaign, and the public ate that shit up. I love People it. People went bananas. There were stories in like every newspaper. People were sending them just tons of money, oh right? Oh my like, gosh. And one news article at the time criticized the NSWLA, saying that perhaps they should change their name from the Ladies Swimming Association to the Ladies Modesty Association. Oh, shit. They Burn. went there. <laughs> they're like, if it's such a big, like, is this about swimming or is it about being modest? Your idea of what 
they should be wearing. Very forward thinking for what, like 1910 at this point? 1910. Well, it was the 1912 Olympics, probably a little before that. But yeah, very, very forward thinking for them to point that out. Yes. Uh, So the news articles were, of course, overwhelmingly favorable. They were calling Fanny the most expert lady swimmer in Australia. Wow. And they demanded that she be allowed to compete. Uh, Hell yeah. And like I said, donations were rolling in just left, right and center. And the women quickly surpassed their goal. They made more money than they needed to travel. So at this point, the NSWLA held a vote on whether or not to change the rules to allow Fanny and Mina to compete. Yeah. And Rose was swiftly outvoted. (laughs) Like everybody else was just like, yeah, we're going to let them, we're going to change the rules. We're going to let them compete. Totally. Not only that, but this was so bad for her that she was forced to resign as a result. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Even for another. 1912 your opinions and views are antiquated yeah wow that's pretty astonishing yeah when they arrived in stockholm fanny won gold in the 100 meter freestyle setting a new world record in the process she was the first australian woman to win an olympic gold medal in a swimming event and one of the first to compete in the olympics period wow and mina who came in only seconds behind fanny took the silver love it these two women who almost didn't get to compete at all took the gold and silver in this category i'm wondering how big the event was for female swimmers in general like how many were even in the competition so it wasn't huge right Um, as i figured the u.s didn't allow women to go but of course there were women swimmers from um england and several other countries so there were swimmers represented from a few different countries and australia took the gold and the silver wow in and the th- first olympics where it was allowed yeah i mean the fact it, it is so strange to think like they almost weren't allowed to do it mm-hmm. and the uh, the uh, no pun intended but also kind of intended the waves they made yeah you know were huge yeah and how sad would it have been if they weren't involved in that event yeah when you know? they were clearly like the top of their field yeah you know Um, though she was not able to compete in the 1920 Olympics in Antwerp due to appendicitis that resulted in typhoid fever and pneumonia. She got really sick, like just before the Uh, 1920 Olympics. And you can't swim with that shit. No, I mean, and again, like she's the top swimmer. She was like the world's best female swimmer at this time, you know? And like, she was not able to compete. She was only able to compete in one Olympic games. Um, but despite that, she would go on to break 12 swimming world records over the next six years. Wow. And she remained the only Australian woman to win a gold in swimming until 1932. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it was 20 years before I was, I was going to ask, what about her friend? Did her friend continue to Oh, compete? yeah. I mean, her, and her friend also smashed it. Like, her it, friend for real, yeah. won a ton of world titles and stuff. And that's kind of something I think about as well, where I'm like, if Mina had swam, like, two seconds faster, then she would have all of these accolades. Because she was yeah. just as good. Seriously. Totally. Just as good. Like, I'm, Fanny, like, came from a more, like, middle-class background, like, yeah. an immigrant background. And I think that that's kind of appealing as well about her story. Yeah. Whereas Mina's background's a little different. A little bit more privileged, but did Mina compete in another Olympics? I'm not sure, actually. I don't know, but I know that she won a 
ton of awards yeah. following um, following the Olympics. So yeah, I'd just be curious as to like if she went to the next Olympics, even though Fanny couldn't. You know, I would how guess well she, she did. did. I would guess she did, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, Fanny's campaign, popularity, skill, and success did a ton to promote women swimming in Australia. It made it so popular. Like after both these women came back, having won the gold and silver, yeah. Like you can just imagine, like the the national pride, which yeah. is the thing that the Olympics evokes the most. Uh, the national pride, and especially for girls to grow up seeing that 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 was something that they could do. Yeah, because it is wild to think about that. Fanny was like in the first pool that allowed mixed gendered mm-hmm. swimming. Yeah. Goes to like the first Olympics that it's allowed. And then all of these young girls at home are watching this or hearing about it or reading about it. And suddenly it's completely changing the narrative. It's changing the story to where you can do this. You can't like this is a possibility for you where a lot of these young girls probably didn't even consider swimming as being something that they could compete in. and compete right. in yeah yeah even if it was something that's just like oh yeah you can go do that for fun or whatever because swimming did become more popular as a pastime in like yeah. the, the 20s it wasn't something that I feel like people were talking about as a competition exactly which is also part of what's so impressive about Fanny's story is that she started competing immediately like yeah. basically it's like she learned how to swim and then as soon as she had that breaststroke down she was like get me in a competition just yeah, as soon as she could. And it's showing young girls that it's okay to be competitive and assertive and want to win and want to be the best. When I think that young women and girls, especially at that time, were probably not taught to have that kind of conviction and confidence in themselves. Well, it's it was always, even whenever I was growing up, like it was, and I think even to today, that kind of confidence, I think we're taught that it's unattractive, yeah. right? That you're, you're supposed to have that like one direction song. You don't know your beautiful kind of mentality about yeah. everything in your life where you're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to say, no, yeah. I'm actually fucking great. Oh, at Oh, am I the best? Oh, am I pretty? Or, oh, like, no, no, I fucking am the best and I'm gorgeous. Right. Suck it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and I feel like women grow up with that a lot and these girls probably, did as well or you know it's it's so incredible to be able to see somebody just own that like they're good at it yeah (laughs) and they they know they're good at it and they're gonna fight to compete totally in 1921 fanny retired from competitive swimming and would go on to devote herself to coaching young children and was made a life member of the new south wales women women's amateur swimming association why are all these things so long in 1945 on my birthday, March 20th. <gasps> it's not exciting. 1956. I mean, every time my birthday or someone's birthday that I know isn't anything, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's this person's no, birthday. Me too, which is why I wrote that. But yeah. then I was just like, but it's a bummer because she died on my birthday. So oh. <laughs> 1956, uh, after a battle with cancer, she oh. passed away in her home. Her brother Frank presented her Olympic gold medal to the Commonwealth government that year, where it is held in the National Library of Australia, Canberra. Oh, I want to see that if I ever go to Australia. She was posthumously inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame as an honor swimmer in 1967. In addition to this, she was inducted into the Victorian Honor Roll of Women in 2001. Wow. She... Um, she also has the Fanny Durek Aquatic Center named after her in Petersham, Sydney, 
and Sarah Durek Avenue, which I told, I got to the end of my notes and I was like, who the fuck Sarah? is Sarah? That's her birth name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I remember that now. <laughs> yeah. But Sarah Durek Avenue at Sydney Olympic Park is also named in her honor. So, wow, but why not Fanny? No one knows her as Sarah. I know. I was just like, why? They were like, no, no, Sarah sounds classier. Yeah, <laughs> like, we got to go with the official name, you know. <laughs> but that is her story. Wow. Yeah, I had not, I didn't know anything about her. And also, I don't know that we've ever featured an Australian woman in our feminist faves. So I don't I think like, we have. And I definitely, I feel like I remember Australian listeners reaching out with like ideas and talking about Australian feminism and stuff in the past. So yeah. it's probably something that we should be looking into Absolutely. more. But I'm so glad that you told that story. I have never, ever heard of her. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I was so impressed. And again, go check out Sirens on YouTube. I only watched that one episode, yeah. but I thought it was like so well done. And it's just like, it seems like these funny women kind of doing a cool thing where they're they're talking about history, Australian history, I love which is it. very cool because I love learning about history in other countries, right? Yeah. Because we, our education system is of course so US centric. Totally, that, like, yeah. That's basically all we ever learn about. I love learning about different people in different cultures. So definitely check it out. I totally will. I'm going to check out that Sirens show. Most definitely. Oh, well, I hope that all of you enjoyed another Feminist Faves episode. Oh my gosh. Stop. What? Stop. What? Stop. What? what? It's not called Sirens. Did I say that? You said Sirens. I think you did. Or oh, did I no. say it wrong? It's probably me. Oh no. It's called Sheila's, <laughs> which makes way more sense. Oh my goodness. I she really was. hope I really hope that everyone listened through this so that they don't go googling sirens. I will put the link to the the episode I watched in the show notes, but she that is so she funny. Wow. Or you'd be getting like people in our DMs like, wow, you really fucked it up. Like all yeah. of our Australian <laughs> listeners, like actually it's this. <laughs> Sheila's. Sorry. I'm gonna look Sheila's. up Sheila's on YouTube. All right. That is another installment of our feminist faves. We hope that you all enjoyed it. If there's anyone that you would like for us to feature in the future, we are always open to suggestions. Go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. Go ahead and like and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And last but not least, the way that you can help us the most is by leaving a five-star review and a quick sentence about why you love us on that Apple podcast app we will love you forever even more than we already do all right with all that being said we encourage you to rage rage on. on bye hey there this is justin bartha i made a funny new podcast king of the egg cream it has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like lewis black i'm torn by my feelings for two women bobby cannavale you can eat it Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.